The Outlet. The Talk of Wanaka. Jeffrey Orbell was an invercargill doctor and he had been fascinated with Takahe since he was 10 years old when he'd seen a photo of a specimen of Takahe in the Otago Museum. And his mum said, oh, that bird is probably extinct. And as a 10-year-old, he went, how could it possibly be extinct? That's a terrible thing. In this death-denying culture that we talk about, we plan for births and marriages and holidays and we train for marathons and things like that. We struggle to embrace death, even though it's inevitable. We don't often talk about it. Welcome to The Outlet. I'm your host, Brent Harbour. In this podcast, I talk to Alison Balance, a zoologist, writer and broadcaster. Alison has written 30 books, including her latest, Takahe, Bird of Dreams. We talk about the discovery of the Takahe after being declared extinct twice, the Takahe recovery program and what the future looks like for one of New Zealand's most intriguing native birds. And Liz and Sue think we live in a death-phobic society. They're behind a concept called the Death Cafe, which is designed to help address this issue and get conversations going. I'll talk to them more about that and also a new group they are starting called Final Acts of Kindness. You're listening to The Outlet from your Wanaka app. Let's have a look at what's on in Wanaka, brought to you by Liquorland 3 Parks, there for your next event with Unreal Deals. Women's 18-hole golf is on every Tuesday 9 to 1pm. Come and enjoy a relaxed round of golf in a weekly competition. Just turn up 20 minutes prior. For more info, contact the Wanaka Golf Club and you can find out more by clicking on the Things to Do button, then what's on on your Wanaka app. The Takahe has been declared extinct twice. Alison Balance is a zoologist, writer and broadcaster and has written 30 books, including her latest, Takahe, Bird of Dreams. Alison talks us through the discovery of the Takahe in 1948, the Takahe Recovery Program and what the future looks like for one of New Zealand's most intriguing native birds. Hi Alison, welcome to The Outlet. It's delightful to be here. Now Takahe have been declared extinct twice. Could you please hear about the moment in 1948 when Geoffrey Orbell found a small population of Takahe living in a remote valley in the Murchison Mountains of Fiordland and how significant that discovery was for New Zealand's Endangered Species Programme? Well, let me just start off by saying it was extremely significant, but let's go back to 1948, to November 1948. Jeffrey Orbell was an invercargill doctor and he had been fascinated with Takahe since he was 10 years old when he'd seen a photo of a specimen of Takahe in the Otago Museum. There were only four specimens at that time and his mum said, oh, that bird is probably extinct. And as a 10-year-old, he went, how could it possibly be extinct? That's a terrible thing. And so he became just fascinated with what he called his bird of dreams and he dreamed about it and he imagined looking for it and finding it. And you've got to remember that, as you said, Takahe had been declared extinct twice. So it was discovered in 1847, first described for some bones, and then there were just five birds found on the South Island in 50 years. And so by the time 1948 rolled around, no one had seen one for 50 years. But he had plotted all the sightings of the birds that he had ever come across and on a map of Fiordland and he thought if I'm going to find them anywhere it will be in the Murchison Mountains and he was also a keen hunter so he decided that he'd combine a hunting trip with looking for Takahe 
So in Easter that year, he took two young friends, Neil McCrosty and Rex Watson, and they went in hunting. And in what's now called Takahe Valley, they heard some strange bird whistles, which they described as like someone blowing across a 303 cartridge. And they found some footprints in the sand on the beach, which they didn't recognise. And they were quite big. And Doc Orbell, as he was known, was convinced it was Takahe. He scratched the size of the footprints on the stem of his pipe because he said that's the one thing that never left his mouth and he would be unlikely to lose it. And he was convinced it was Takahe. The experts still weren't quite so convinced. But in November that year, on the 20th of November, he went back in with Rex and Neil and with young Joan Telfer. And they left Teano at dawn and they climbed up through the steep beech forest into Takahe Valley. And when they arrived at what's now called Lake Orbell, they saw two Takahe just wandering around out in the open. I think they stood there for a minute or two gobsmacked, basically. And then they brought a fishing net with them and they rounded these two birds who were completely tame. These are birds that had never seen a person, rounded them up into the fishing net tethered them on the beach, took some movie footage, took some still photographs, ate their lunch, and then even though it was only 9.30 in the morning, raced back down the mountain to basically drive as fast as they could back to Invercargill to get the photos developed. And they told the Southland Times, and then the story went global. It was headlines around the world. Like, you just can't imagine how much excitement this rediscovery caused. So what is it about Takahe and their story that inspired you into writing Takahe Bird of Dreams and about the Takahe Recovery Program? Well, Takahe Bird of Dreams is a bit of a sister volume to an earlier book I did called Kākāpō, Rescued from the Brink of Extinction. And I just had this fascination with these giant, flightless, herbivorous birds. And if you just pause for a minute and think, they are the two surviving birds that we have out of a group. We used to have lots of them. Think of all the more we lost. So these are two incredibly special and unique birds that are only found here. And both of those species have flirted with extinction. And they just both have such gripping stories. And it's like, why wouldn't I write a book on Takahe once I've done the Kākāpō one, quite frankly? And so it's the bird itself. It's this amazing history. And in the terms of Takahe, there's this incredibly compelling 75-year conservation story. It's been a roller coaster. You know, things get a bit better and then they get worse and then they... So, the, you know, you're trying to bring the species back from the brink. All of those elements make a fabulous story. Yeah, and it's good that you mention that because there were different approaches considered for the Takahe Recovery Program. So what were some of the key factors that influenced these decisions and what were the ultimate outcomes? Oh, so much has happened in this program and was tricky even just fitting it into one book. So there was an initial focus on let's keep these magnificent birds in the wilds of Fiordland, which is remote and a difficult place to work. And there was the realisation that deer were having a profound impact on the health of that subalpine ecosystem. And so that was in turn affecting the Takahe. So they started lots of deer culling. They even tried aerial top dressing with fertiliser just to see if that would make the tussock grow a bit better. What else was there? There was an early attempt at captive breeding, mostly based at Mount Bruce in the Wairarapa. Then they decided that they would try that a bit more seriously starting in the early 1980s and they switched efforts to Burwood near Tiano and they were getting excess Takahe eggs, excess Takahe eggs being Takahe lay two eggs. They generally only raise one chick, so if they got two fertile eggs, bring one of them and raise them in captivity. They tried doing that for a while. They were producing excess birds 
He tried to start a new population in the Stuart Mountains in Fiordland, and then they decided that wasn't working, so they started founding new populations on islands. And that's remarkable when you think about it, this bird from the Fiordland Mountains. You could stick it on an island like, let's say, Tiritiri Matangi in the Hareki Gulf, which was a, a fuller farm, and the Takahe did just fine. And then they've refined the captive breeding over the years, so they've had to really work out all these aspects of things, which often have set other endangered species up quite well. But, you know, they tried it first with Takahe, and then they would try it with other species. The Takahe is described as a uniquely colourful and dignified bird, and I've been lucky enough to go to Tawhiranui Regional Park. And, you know, the Takahe are just wandering around the car park like nothing's ever gone on. And you, you kind of stand back and think, crikey, people seeing these birds don't realise they've been declared extinct twice and how lucky they are to see them. What are some of the unique appearances and characteristics that make them stand out from other New Zealand birds? Well, if you've seen one, like you've been lucky enough to, and I do think you are incredibly privileged to be able to see a Takahe. I mean, what a treat. They are incredibly striking birds. They are big. You know, they're about three kilos of bird and they, they've got a lot of heft to them. They've got that huge red bill, a big red frontal plate above it. They've got red legs worthy of a rugby player and their feathers are this beautiful blue with hints of turquoise and they've got like a green cloak draped across their back. So they're incredibly striking. And as you say, they just wander around. They get accustomed to people very quickly. So it's a little easy to get a bit blasé about them, I think. But I think every time you see one, the fact that you can sit down and just hang out with this bird that was, you know, as a giant, flightless, herbivorous wonder of the world... Um, that's a remarkable thing to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're lucky enough down there too. Uh, Tafalanui has kiwi as well. So it's just an incredible place. And as you say, to see them wandering around, they are, they are quite stocky. You could imagine what they'd be like if they were a lot bigger. They'd be more like a mower with a bit of a shorter neck, I'd imagine. I think you're right. How are predators like stoats and other introduced species affecting the recovery program? And, and what are your feelings for the future for the Takahe? Well, stoats, I have to say, are very bad news. And they discovered that to their cost, the, the Department of Conservation's Takahe Recovery Program had always suspected stoats were bad news. They thought they might kill chicks and juveniles. 2007, there was a massive stoat plague in the Murchison Mountains, and they'd lost 43% of their adult Takahe. So an adult Takahe is much bigger than a stoat, but stoats are just the ultimate killer. So they run a massive trapping program in there. They're producing lots of Takahe these days from a very successful captive rearing program now at Burwood, which need homes. And so basically, I think the future of Takahe depends on predator-free 2050. We need lots of big areas of grassland and tussock where there are no stoats, ferrets or feral cats. And then we could just leave the Takahe to do their own thing. It's a wonderful book. There's some beautiful photos in there too. How did you go about getting all those photos? I got in touch with a lot of rangers who'd worked with Takahe over the years and hunted them down and they dug out slides from their basement and <laughs> I just basically talked to anyone who might have Takahe photos. So you can buy the book at all bookstores. Where online can you buy it, Alison? Pretty much any bookseller is online these days as well. So something like Whitcalls and Paper Plus... Mighty 8, Fish Pond, 
you can go direct to the publisher, which is Potton and Burton and Nelson, and that's pottonandburton.co.nz. Well, thank you so much for all the work you're doing for New Zealand native species of birds, and it's just a wonderful book, and I really appreciate you having a chat today. I am always happy to talk about Takahe. The Outlet. Jobs Board. Here are some of the jobs listed this week on the Wanaka app. Thanks to New World 3 Parks for when it's your job to do the grocery shopping. Hook Wanaka, Lake to Plate, are looking for a qualified chef. If you like working with fresh fish and produce, it doesn't get any fresher than this. It's a fixed term for two months with the potential to stay on. Woodfire Pizza experience a bonus, but not a requirement. Auto Motivation is looking for an experienced mechanic with at least three years' experience. You'll be part of a great team and receive a competitive rate of pay. Ideally, the start date would be Monday the 31st of July. And Aspiring Pharmacy are looking for a retail assistant. If you're passionate about providing exceptional customer service and thrive in a fast-paced environment, then this is the job for you. You can find out more about these jobs and more by clicking on the Jobs button on the bottom navigation bar of your Wanaka app. You're listening to The Outlet. I really like the interviews. I like that it's easy to listen to while I'm at the gym. I like that it's local and all about this community. The Outlet. The talk of Wanaka. Let's check out a local event in Wanaka, brought to you by Liquorland 3 Parks, there for your next event with Unreal Deals. Tuesday Night Trivia is on a Ground Up Brewery every Tuesday from 6.30 to 9. So get your team together and test your knowledge. Their new host, Stoney, will take you through some fun and challenging trivia. The quiz will kick off at 7pm sharp, so be sure to get there at 6.30 to register. More details can be found by clicking on the Things To Do button and then What's On on your Wanaka app. Liz and Sue think we live in a death-phobic society, that we struggle to talk about it. They're behind a concept called the Death Cafe. Now, the Death Cafe is designed to help address this issue and get conversations going. They're also starting a new group called Final Acts of Kindness. Liz and Sue, join me now. Can you talk me through the Death Cafe concept and how it differs from traditional approaches to discussing death. The Death Cafe concept was started in 2010 by a man called John Underwood, who was doing a project focused on talking about death, and and he um, just gathered some people together, and they just had these free-range kind of discussions where it was completely led by the people who came, you know, what they talked about. And it worked really well, and so they just kept having these, and they'd have them in all different funky places, like cafes or yurts or festival halls, even cemeteries. And he developed some guidelines around it. So now it's all over the world. There are over 11,000 uh, groups in over 73 countries. And I think it's different from other concepts because we're not, Sue and I aren't telling people what to talk about. We're just asking people, what would you like to talk about today? And then we facilitate conversation. It's this lovely juxtaposition of something warm and cosy, like going to a cafe and eating nice muffin and drinking a cup of tea and you're talking about this hard subject of death and dying. Yeah, I think you're right when you say that we live in a death-phobic society. So how does the Death Cafe help address this issue and get the conversations going? Well, it's um, a, a safe, open space for people to actually just gather and feel comfortable about discussing things that maybe are difficult with family. So it's, you know, with strangers it can be quite different. You know, in this death-denying culture that we talk about, we we kind of, we plan for births and marriages and holidays and we train for 
marathons and things like that, but we don't actually, we struggle to embrace death. And even though it's inevitable, we don't often talk about it. And so discussing our thoughts and feelings and emotions around that gives us a sense of peace. Talking about death doesn't take away the sadness, but you know, accepting death doesn't mean that you won't be devastated when someone you, you love dies, but it means that you'll be able to sort of focus more on your grief and, and possibly being involved in the process, which is also a very healing part of, of losing someone. So what are some of the topics you discuss and has anything surprised you when people have started conversations? I guess because we live in Wanaka and Sue and I both live a very sustainable lifestyle, we've had a lot of discussions around more sustainable practices around death. I mean, a lot of that. And also a lot of discussions around how can we take responsibility for our life by preparing for our death or take responsibility for our death really. So we've even had workshops on where we can fill in the advanced care plan from the government and we actually just say, well, let's work out who is going to be my you know, enduring power of attorney and do I want to be cremated or buried and who do I want around me and just make those decisions so that someone else isn't left in shock if we suddenly you know, have an accident. So, yeah, so I think our discussions have more been along the lines of sustainability. We're touching on all kinds of subjects. So, again, it, it depends what people bring to the table. We're quite clear we're not a bereavement support group. That's one of the sort of, you know, rules around it. But people do come when, you know, and of course they tell us when they've had loss in their family. And and it, often they will share their experiences. And that's a great discussion because you know, to talk about what it was like for them, what worked well, what didn't work well, and, and how the death care practices happened. And I think in today's world, you know, we're, we're talking, we're touching on climate change and um, sort of sustainable practices. So that seems to come up quite often, doesn't it? And yeah, that's sort of led us into different ways of approaching our community with with this subject, really. And really, out of that came our group that we formed together, the Natural Burial Ground Group, that was looking at having a natural um, cemetery here in Wanaka. And also a group Sue and I are leading called the Final Acts of Kindness, where we can go into homes and offer choice and support and guidance to people who want to have home death care and just do it in a much more loving, connected way when someone dies, much more financially sustainable and environmentally sustainable. Sustainability and burials and all those kind of things. So There are so many different options these days, aren't there? People don't really seem to realise that they do have the options and and being sort of in this small island in the Pacific, we don't have as many options as, as some of the other places in the world, which... Hopefully we'll get there one day. But but it seems a standard thing, and I know I did it when my father died, the shock of it, and then immediately phoning up a funeral director and the body being embalmed and then having the funeral. And we're really wanting to raise awareness on why are we embalming these bodies when they're going to be buried or cremated three or four days later. And it's an invasive procedure to the body and it's very expensive and it's not environmentally friendly. So we're, we're talking about that as well and... and the Death Cafe owns a freezer and we have these special um, cooling mats called Manaki mats, which we can keep a body cool for three or four days. So people can make their own coffins. And we've been talking to the men in the community workplace and they're beginning to have some coffin-making workshops, which we're going to be the guinea pigs. And we're just looking at different ways of doing it where we actually have a wake, where the person can stay at home, be loved by their family, go from their family to the cemetery 
and then they still have to be cremated, which is not environmentally friendly, but if they're not full of toxins, it's better. I think that's right too, because I know that when someone does die, all the pressure seems to come on from the hospital, from the funeral directors to make all these decisions really quickly. And I mean, you, you really don't have any time to, to breathe or grieve a little bit. You just go straight into this process where you're making all these decisions. And you're right, sometimes you just do it because you think you have to. Yes, and, and when you're in shock, it's wonderful for someone to come in and do everything for you. So in the death cafe, this is another thing that's come out of our discussions to think, how do we want to die? And let's prepare now because if you die suddenly, it's very hard to do this, you know. But if you've prepared and said to people, this is what I want, or you have your flat pack coffin in your garage, or it's a, it's a place to, you know, store shoes or books or something, and you've said your requests, then you are prepared. And we just want people to take responsibility for their death, really. And where are all your passwords stored? I mean, how are people going to know how to get into a, your computer and, you know, make life easier for your loved ones on that level too? Yeah, I think so. When my mum passed away a couple of years ago, my brothers and I, were we were hopeless. But mum had left a letter with everything, all her instructions written down. And she's always told us it was in a drawer, but we never went there to look at it. We, we you know, Because it's exactly what you're talking about. We didn't want to talk yeah. about it or think about it. Yeah, good on her. And then she, there she is taking responsibility and making life easier for her sons who are really grieving. So you're doing some wonderful stuff. So how do people get involved? And when is the next Wanaka Death Cafe? Uh, so we have our uh, meetings once a month and we try to change the times and days around so that we can, you know, fit in with other people's lives. The next one is on the 10th of August at 10 o'clock in the morning and that's at Alchemy Cafe in Wanaka. So we move them around to different cafes that way it supports local business as well and um, you know so it makes it easier for people to get to. You can also find us on uh, we have a Facebook page called the Death Cafe Wanaka and we advertise on meetup.com which means that you'll then become part of a, a database we'll always get an email and we can inform you what's happening and we also advertise on most of the um, social media pages as well well that's great well thank you for the work you do i think it's very important uh, looking after people and the planning and thanks for having a chat today great thank you very much Greg. download the wanaka app from the app store or google play thanks for listening to the outlet your local interview and information podcast for wanaka if you have a story or an interview you think should be featured on the Outlet podcast, get in touch by using the contact button on the navigation bar of your Wanaka app. The Outlet is produced and published by the Wanaka app and supported with funding from the New Zealand Public Interest Journalism Fund. All episodes of the Outlet are available in the podcast section of your Wanaka app and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>